had the opportunity this weekend to perform a wedding ceremony. Um, I love being a part of people's uh, kind of premarital process. Like when people ask me, I will tell them, hey, if you're looking for just someone to do your ceremony, I'm not interested, but if you would allow me to be a part of the process and talk about what marriage looks like, I would love to be a part of that with you. And uh, Connor and Emma were were the couple that had the opportunity uh, to perform their ceremony this week. And Connor was a much younger fraternity brother of mine. And so uh, apparently I did a wedding a few years ago of a best man of his. And so he kind of reached out and my wife and I had some opportunity to have conversations with Connor and Emma over uh, the last few weeks and um, or months. I was able to build kind of a wedding message off of a motto that was personally applicable to Connor. Connor, once he finished uh, school, enlisted as a Marine, and so he just got out of uh, you know, his active duty in uh, March, April or so. And there's a saying uh, among Marines called Semper Fidelis, and uh, actually I saw it on 71 driving up to the wedding yesterday. What it means is a motto that's Latin for always faithful, right? Semper Fi, it's something that a Marine would share to one another to, know, to let you know that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the cost, I will fight for you. I have your back. You can trust me, right? And it was a beautiful picture of uh, the characteristics of Jesus, but God's expectation and desire for marriage, right? Because when I perform a wedding ceremony, I talk about this covenant relationship, that it is a promise of faithfulness for all life. And within this covenant relationship brings a unique security to a relationship. And within a secure relationship, it opens the door for intimacy to be expressed and shared. There's no fear of needing to impress one another. You can show weakness and vulnerability knowing that you will fight and stand for each other. And so it was just a a cool opportunity to be a part uh, with them. And I'm always reminded uh, during wedding ceremonies in particular of some of the importances that you and I have of our personal needs. Psychologists actually would kind of distinguish physical needs from our personal needs. So all of us have physical needs. You know, you probably ate breakfast this morning when you came, food, shelter, water. But we would have personal needs as well. And uh, in psychology, they've been able to boil that down to two primary needs. All the secondary needs fill our primary needs. And those two needs are security and significance. And so when we think of our relationship with God, I think a question that often we ask is, am I secure in my relationship with God? I believe that the passage we are going to look at today seeks to answer that question for you and I. So if you're there, Romans chapter 8, we've said that This chapter uh, is a favorite chapter of many theologians, pastors. A guy by the name of John Piper, he's a pastor in Minnesota, he says the Bible is the greatest book. He says Romans is his favorite greatest letter. 
And chapter 8 is the greatest chapter for him. And we see it is this uh, hymn of hope and praise throughout Romans chapter 8. It begins with clear indication of God's mercy. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And it ends with a triumphant statement of nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so all throughout Romans chapter 8, we've been looking over the last four weeks of significant truths. We began our series by saying life is either governed by spirit or self. That it is a dichotomy. We live in either one or two camps. Either we live to please ourselves, or we live to please the Spirit. And a life led by the Spirit produces freedom. No longer do I have to feel chained by the penalty of sin, that I no longer have to live under accusations of condemnation, that I can experience freedom. And no longer am I shackled by the power of sin, that I can overcome this grip of stinking thinking, right? We looked and saw in the second part that uh, God invites us to be adopted into his family, that life is belonging to God's family. And over the last two weeks, we've kind of journeyed in this reality and truth that life is hard, but even when it's difficult and hard, God is good. So today, we're going to conclude this series, and this chapter. And it is a powerful rhetoric in conclusion to Romans chapter 8, but the first eight chapters of Romans as well. So Paul, as he begins to kind of conclude, is much like a lawyer who is giving his closing arguments, and we will unpack some of these arguments that he has. If you're there, starting in verse 31 of chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to this? What we've seen the first 30 verses, but the first eight chapters as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? The word if here doesn't mean iffy. Rather, it would probably best be translated since. Since God is for us, we can have the confidence that we can withstand whatever may be against us. That nothing can thwart God's purpose and His power, His sovereignty, the fact that He is in control. We said last week, we looked at uh, Romans 8.28, that God works everything out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Right, And that purpose, we saw, is to be conformed to the image of God, that God allows things and will work things out so that those who are in Christ can reflect more what it looks like to be like Jesus, right? That God will work his good purposes in a way to make much of him, to display his character, show his glory. And it says nothing that we face can thwart those purposes, doesn't say there won't be any opposition. It actually says we can expect opposition. But no matter what opposition we may face, maybe uh, difficult people in our lives, maybe we struggle with our boss that's being harsh, or uh, maybe a family member that's antagonistic, 
or a child of ours that's being really difficult, right? That admits those oppositions, we can trust that God is always for us in working for our good. And what Paul is doing is he's pointing out the puniness of any opposition when God is a proponent in our life. When God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on in verse 32, and he paints kind of a a second argument. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul's second argument is based on the greater and the lesser. What he is saying is that if God was willingly to give us the greatest gift of all, won't he meet and be able to provide for our other needs? I like to think of it this way. I have a, uh, oh, I have four kids, but two of them are in school. So I have a second grader and a kindergartner. Now, if Maggie and Cooper came to me and said, Dad, would you be willing to help me with my homework, right? I could possibly respond to them and say, hey, do you recognize for seven and five years of your life, I've given you everything that you need uh, physically to be able to survive, right? Food on the table, shelter. Of course, I will help meet this kind of minimal need that you have compared to everything that I have provided for you. The same thing is true of what Paul is saying, is that if we understand the extent and significance of God's greatest gift in the form of himself in Jesus, then we can have confidence and clarity that we can come before God with other needs that we have, and God will seek to provide and meet those needs, right? That if we understand that uh, Jesus had to suffer humiliation and rejection, that he died an unjust death, and he was separated from God, that he, as a triune God, has always existed in perfect unity and community, but he willingly left his throne in heaven to become a human and die an agonizing death in our place. That if we realize the significance of that, we can have confidence of asking him when we need help in our marriage, that we need wisdom in a parenting, right? That we are unsure about our next job opportunity or the provision that God may have to meet particular needs, that we can approach him knowing that if God has given us the greatest things, that we can trust his provision and his goodness in our life. Paul goes on to make a kind of third argument that we see in verse 33 and 34. He says, Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died more than that. Who was raised to life is at the right hand and is also interceding for us. These two verses have a significant judicial flavor to them. It reminds us of kind of this courtroom scene. I'd like you to imagine that you are walking into a courtroom, and there sits the judge, God himself, who's perfect and holy 
and almighty. He's the one that views testimony. He's the one that uh, looks over the evidence. And we walk into the courtroom and we are led to the defendant's seat. And earlier in Romans, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 1.20 says, God has clearly revealed himself so that every man and woman is without excuse. That we sit before a perfect and holy God. Guilty is charged. That there is nothing we can do to overturn that verdict. But it says that Jesus, who has the rightful place as our prosecutor, he's the one that could accuse or condemn us for not living this perfect life, willingly resigns his post and takes the penalty that we deserve in our place. Right? That he pays that penalty in full. But once he dies and is risen again, he comes and he sits beside us as our defense attorney. That he is constantly interceding and advocating on our behalf. That we can have the confidence that God is for us. We see this in uh, 1 John. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. That we can have confidence that God's justice, once and for all, has been met by Jesus' advocacy. My wife and I uh, lead at the Norton campus an adoption and foster care group. And at times, we get to be uniquely involved in people's uh, advocating for children. We have a a family who um, started fostering a young girl before she had turned one. And so on two separate occasions, they had her in her home for a year and a half, two years about. And uh, she's been back home with her uh, dad and grandma for the last eight, nine months or so. And in this process, um, this family received a phone call from a relative of them saying, situation's dire. You need to do something. You need to step in and fight for this little girl. She isn't being cared for properly, isn't safe. They involve children's services and call, and children's services says, hey, if you can, like, orchestrate this because of your relationship with the father, like, please do so. And so in the process, right, they file for emergency temporary custody. And I had the opportunity to go with the courtroom with them. And as they're pleading and fighting for this process, right, This little girl who's now six has no idea of the fight and advocacy this family has for her, right? The amount of cost of hiring a lawyer, of doing everything possible to try and love this family, but to protect and care for her. That is the picture that we have of Jesus, that he is our advocate, that we cannot fathom or understand 
the expense that he has paid on our behalf, that he is fighting for us, that it's because of his work we can stand justified before God. That justification is one metaphor or picture that Scripture uses to describe the point of salvation. So when we place our faith in the finished work of Christ, that we recognize there's nothing we can do to overturn that guilty plea, that we allow Jesus to take the penalty for our sin, we receive the verdict of not guilty. Not because we didn't deserve it. It is a one-time event that can never be overturned. There's nothing that humanity can do to overturn the work of God. And we see this beautiful picture of what takes place at the point when someone says yes to Jesus, when they place their, their faith in who Jesus is, in his character. And we see all throughout Scripture different metaphors that are used to highlight this same truth. We see in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it begins by saying that we are dead in our trespasses, but in Christ we are made alive. We are raised to a new life, that we move from being estranged from God to become part of his family now that we can truly live. 2 Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That the old has gone, the new has come. It's this metamorphosis that our old life is changed. I, once a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, they can't go back in the process. It's a one-time event that can never be undone. We see in John chapter 3 that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's telling him this process of being born again. Right, Not a physical rebirth, but rather a spiritual rebirth. This event that can never be undone. We see the picture of salvation in terms of to be baptized by the Spirit. That 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about at the point of salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit. Much like the symbol of water baptism, right? Which pictures our relationship with Christ if someone uh, was dunked in the water uh, and as a symbol or a picture of what God has done for them and raised to new life, that person could never say, I didn't get baptized, right? Even though baptism is a symbol, the work of the Holy Spirit is that he will always be a part of our life, that we receive the Holy Spirit and he will never leave us. We see this picture of reconciliation, that once we were estranged enemies of God, and now we can be his friend, that we can be accepted, that we can be in right relationship. We see this picture of redemption in scripture, right? That we were bought out of slavery, that our ransom price was paid so that we can be a part of the family. We talked about it week two, this picture of adoption, Right, that we were given the legal rights of a son, that we were taken from this slave trade and in bondage and freed and received an inheritance equal to that of a son. We see this picture of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 talks about it, where 
This is a guarantee, a down deposit on God's presence for all eternity. Right? The fact that we recognize His Holy Spirit with us is a promise that God will spend all eternity with us. We see time and time again metaphors and uses of scriptures to describe this one-time event that takes place that can never be undone. If you take notes, I'd like you to write it this way. God's mercy is constant and cannot be reversed. I read an illustration in a book by uh, Charles Stanley. He was saying, imagine we walk up and we're an observer of a burning building that's caught on fire. Maybe it's an apartment building. And we walk up, and in the smoke, in the haze, in the fire, our eye catches on the third floor this woman that is pantically screaming. Right? The fire is about to catch her. And we begin to kind of look around at the chaos that's ensued, and below her we see firefighters that have assembled and have a safety net out. That they're ready to catch her for when she jumps. And this woman and her frantic state and face makes the great leap. And she jumps and lands safely into the net with minor injuries or casualties. Now, who would we say saved this woman? The firefighters, the safety net saved this woman. She clearly didn't save herself. But what was required to bridge her desperate need with her salvation? Well, it was one leap of faith that was required, right? That God is the author of salvation. That there is nothing we can do to earn salvation. But what is required is one giant leap of faith. So this woman now, as she lives her life, she always has in the back of her mind this rescue that defines the rest of her life. And it can never be undone, right? That she can live with confidence and security that what took place defines the rest of her life. God's mercy is constant and can never be reversed. Paul makes kind of a final argument over the next four verses, and it begins in verse 35. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I don't know. When you look at that list, that's not the most exciting list to me, right? Uh, It seems to invite that if we choose to follow Christ, we're going to face difficulty and hardship that we may not otherwise face. Right? That there are going to be difficult times if we ever were told or maybe choose to share in the process of trying to tell someone about faith in Christ. We have to be cautious to paint the picture that following Christ is like a bed of roses. Because it's not. That it's going to be hard and difficult. But what we have is the assurity and the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? Because you think of people all around the world that maybe even at this moment, they're facing extreme persecution, that in the midst of maybe torture and being alone, that they can hold tightly to the promise that God will never leave them nor forsake them, that we can have this confidence that no matter what we face, God is with us. 
in this soaring kind of rhetoric of a closing argument, we find, I don't know, almost like to me this herky-jerky kind of insertion in verse 36. To me, it like doesn't quite flow as well as the rest of his argument. Because we see Paul quoting from the Old Testament. He says, as is written for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. Now, what Paul was doing is something that was very familiar with the rabbis of those days. What they would do is, um, it was called remez, R-E-M-E-Z. What they would do is insert a line of a poem or a lyric to remind the reader of the entirety of that song. So, you know, if I were to bust out, tell me why ain't nothing but a heart. You can tell why I don't sing in the band very quickly, right? Um, but we hear lyrics on the radio, and that reminds me of the Backstreet Boys song, I Want It That Way, and uh, serenading sororities my freshman year in college with that song, right? There's a whole story behind one lyric of a song. We hear it on the radio. We think of pictures or memories of significance. And that's what Paul's doing. He's telling them of Psalm 44. He quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. And in this psalm was a very dark time of Israel's history. They were questioning God's provision. Where had God gone? The promises that he had given them. Had he just left them? And they're crying out and pleading. When you read Psalm 44, you see the desperation of the psalmist in this. Pleading for God's mercy. And what Paul is doing is reminding them of that point in history, showing his faithfulness in pursuit to answer and meet their deepest needs. Because Psalm 44 is directly before Psalm 45. And in Psalm 45, we see this picture of a conquering king who is coming for his bride. And what we see here as Paul is using is reminding them of God's path faithfulness that can give us confidence of moving ahead in the future. I think of it in, in my own life, that there are times when maybe... I doubt or fear God's provision, that I can look in the past of him particularly meeting certain needs to give me confidence and assurity moving ahead. Right? Some of the greatest times that I can look back is when I journaled and had a prayer asking God just to step into situations and to see him answer and to see his faithfulness that Paul can say God is with us, that no matter what outward circumstances we face, we can have the inward resolve and hope that one day God is coming back and he will make all things that are wrong right. That one day he will rightfully rule on his throne. That no matter what we face, it will pale in comparison to what is offered to us for all eternity. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Death may separate us from the earth and from people that we love. It's hard and it's a a grief process, but we're giving the assurance that death will never separate us or cease us from God's love and his protection. Paul goes on to say, anything that we currently face, he says, any opposition that may come our way, he says, anything that we may face in the future, he says, he boldly declares that nothing will ever happen that will contain enough power to hinder a believer from knowing and experiencing God. He says, nor any powers. The Greek word here that uh, is used often denotes this idea of political powers, right? That no matter how evil governments are around the world, that nothing can separate them from the love of God in his pursuit of him revealing himself, right? Paul, who's writing this, is stuck in a jail cell later in his life, right? And in his lonely and his desperation, his persecution that he had faced, he can have the assurance and the hope that God is with him. And to make absolutely clear, he's covered everything. He gives us this summary and says all of creation, right? Any physical beings or spiritual powers, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I love this interpretive translation of a theologian. He says, I've been persuaded and I remain convinced that neither death nor complications that often arise nor powerful angelic beings, nor even an entire group of high-ranking demonic spirits, nor anything that currently exists, nor anything that could potentially happen in the future, nor any political power, nor anything in the highest heavens, nor anything that resides in the deepest depths, nor anything that has been created is capable of disconnecting us from the love of God or putting any distance between us and the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? It says that we are more than conquerors. And what I firmly believe this is saying is that God's love conquers any and all fear. That where God's love exists, we have no reason to fear. There's a psychologist by the name of um, Kluber Ross, Elizabeth Kluber Ross. And she states that she believes every emotion comes from two root sources. And she says that it's either fear or love. Here's her quote. There are only two emotions, love and fear. All positive emotions come from love, all negative emotions from fear. From love flow happiness, contentment, peace, and joy. From fear come anger, hate, anxiety, and guilt. It's true that there are only two primary emotions, love and fear. But it's more accurate to say there is only love or fear, for we cannot feel these two emotions together exactly at the same time. They're opposites. If we're in fear, we're not in a place of love. When we're in a place of love, we cannot be in a place of fear. You think from this root source of being able 
to feel loved, we're able to have a sense of belonging, a sense of acceptance that no matter what comes our way, we can have a peace and a contentment. We can have empathy for other people because we're not looking for something from them, but can offer something for them. We can have this sense of wonder, of joy, but from the root fear of love, uh, of fear comes despair, worry, a fear of abandonment, that we won't be accepted, that we may be ignored or forsaken, that anger, a fear of the unknown, that we're not in control of the circumstances and situations. We find that we either can live on the side of love or fear. I firmly believe that a belief of when we have said yes to Jesus and we receive eternal life is living under the umbrella of God's love. But if we fear doing an action that may lose salvation, we then become motivated by fear rather than love. There's a theologian, Bob Wilkin, that says, at times we can interact with God like a daisy theology. Imagine this young girl who goes out to the field, maybe she's in a relationship with the boy, and she grabs this little daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. But what Paul is saying is that God is faithful, he is constant, that we never have to question his love for us. 1 John 4 says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Have you ever lived in a state of being in fear? I read in the 1930s uh, to, under the occupation of being a bridge builder, was a rather fearful occupation, right? There were high winds and strong currents that made this profession rather risky. They would often account in a bridge project one casualty or death for every million dollars of the project. They say that guys who would work on the bridges uh, were kind of not supposed to show the fear that they had, but often they would walk away like drenched in sweat and anxiety from the work that they were doing. In, during the Great Depression in 1933 through the 36, in Oakland Bay Bridge, they had anywhere between 24 and 28 casualties. That at this time, they were putting plans together for the Golden Gate Bridge, and there was an engineer by the name of Joseph Strauss. And Joseph Strauss did everything he could do to ensure the safety of his men working on this bridge. He required hard hats to be worn for the first time. Hard hats were available, but it wasn't always protocol to require them to be worn. OSHA would have been happy with Joseph Strauss, right? 
he uh, made sure that there was no uh, like crazy playing, right? That they couldn't joke around on the work site, that they had to take safety seriously. But the most significant thing that he did was choose to invest $130,000. Think of that amount during the Great Depression, right? Think of the cost that this took related to the project. And he built, or had done, an entire safety net that stretched from 10 feet outside of the bridge to 10 feet outside of the bridge, connected from pylon to pylon. That safety net saved the lives of 19 workers on the Golden Gate Bridge. It said the morale on that job site was higher than it had ever been for bridge builders. They said that they could have confidence of doing their work, that no matter how difficult the storms or the weather were, that if they were to make a mistake, right, even though it would be pretty scary, that their lives would be saved. That they could live with confidence and assurance that their work didn't mean death, that they wouldn't be separated from their family. And it gave them confidence and morale to do the work with a much stronger zest for life. I think the same thing is true when it comes to our relationship with God. When we recognize that we don't have to live in fear, that we can be motivated by God's love, that it can allow us within the sense of that security to experience the intimacy and joy of what it looks like to live in response to what God has done. That once we understand that if we make a declaration of faith and put our hope and trust in the finished work of Christ, that we can live under the umbrella that eternal life is irrevocable. That what God has offered to us, he will never take away. Because it's not conditional on what you and I do. That we can never undo what God has done for us. That if God is on our side, who are we to fear? That our opponents are puny compared to the all-powerful God is our proponent. That we can be more than conquerors. That Jesus is at this moment advocating on our behalf. That he himself has been the perfect sacrifice that was required to be able to reunite us with a perfect and holy God. That from this security and relationship, we can live free. We can live with confidence that nothing you and I do can separate us from the love of God. That we no longer have to fear evil.